So Matt, what do you think of when you hear the word capital? Capital idea, I think. It's a very British way of saying, oh, jolly good. Well, actually, jolly good is a very British way of saying jolly good. It's a very British way of saying that's great. But it's also a bit old-fashioned. Uh -huh. No one would say it now. Capital. In, in, in Estonian, there, there is a word capital, which means kind of like total or enormous or huge. It's like saying awesome like that. Say, so, oh, that's capital. Well, yeah, if you would... If, if you, Can you give yeah, us an example? Are these, these chips are capital? Uh, no, this destruction was capital. So that makes me think of capital punishment. There. Yes, yes, yes. That's pretty total. Writing in capitals is pretty... Capital letters. That's pretty right. big, pretty total. So it's Talking of writing knows. that's big, there's Das Kapital by Karl Marx. That's a big book. Actually, it's more than one book, isn't it? It's a couple of volumes. Hmm. Hmm. My grandfather had that on his shelf. I always used to look at it and pretend to read it, but it was too long. I couldn't handle it. I went back to my Tintin. No, I thought it was just a list of uh, the capitals of world cities. Oh, what's the, yeah. What's the capital of Wales? <sighs> Cardiff. I... Cardiff. Cardiff? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, does, does Cardiff have a capital market? I don't think they have a capital market there. No, no, no. That's, I thought in, that's all, in London. I thought all capitals would have a capital market. I thought that's what capital market stands for. No, the capital markets in Britain are in London. Ah. Capital markets. Hmm. hmm. Maybe we should find out what capital markets actually means if it's not for capitals. First of all, what's the capital of Estonia? Tallinn. Ah, okay. Now I've got the information I need. We can do the podcast about capital markets. Today on a dictionary of finance from the European Investment Bank, Capital markets. Capital with an A-L, not capital. That's the Capitol building in Washington. That's different. This is capital markets. This week on A Dictionary of Finance from the European Investment Bank, capital markets. And the man who will be telling us about that, Alar, is Sandeep Dawan, who is the head of division for America, Asia, Pacific, in the Finance Directorate, uh, which means, Sandeep, that you deal with capital markets or also money markets? Is there a difference? What's the difference between the two? There is a difference. So um, capital markets, plural, comprise of individual capital market. Mm -hmm. um, so equity and bond markets collectively are known as capital markets, whereas equity capital market and bond capital market are singular. So that gets that out of the way, I hope. And why are they called a capital market? Because they are a mechanism for raising capital to any, uh, any economy. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the fundamental issues with any economy is to transform savings productively into investments so that in firms can produce goods and services for the economy. And capital markets are nothing but a mechanism that enable this transformation and allow countries or companies or governments to raise money in mm -hmm. the form of equities or bonds. Mm -hmm. through these markets in order to invest and produce goods. So services. you're raising capital. Mm -hmm. That capital is money. Capital but is these money. are different from the money markets. Correct. What's the money markets? Well, money markets are generally, is a term used to describe financial instruments that help finance liquidity for shorter periods, usually 12 months and under. Whereas capital markets enable companies and firms and governments to finance themselves for periods longer than a year, usually much longer than a year. But the equity capital market, singular, 
this is considered to be this one global market of of equity trading. Uh, so it, it's it doesn't consist of separate markets in New York and in in the different capitals. So. Um, because you know that's that's what I've grown up with uh, seeing in the news is that I don't know the New York Stock Exchange, the the, the London Stock Exchange, the different stock exchanges. You know, I would think they're all you know separate marketplaces, or is it, is it still considered to be a, a a one global market now? Well, globalization has enabled reach of markets globally, but all that means is the ability to raise finance across the planet. So if you can structure an offering of equity that enables you to raise financing across the planet from various jurisdictions, that's global. Whereas if you just wanted to target your domestic market or even a particular exchange or region, you could do that. So there's fragmentation to the level you want to take it to, like a private placement of equity going to certain high net worth individuals, family and friends to begin with. That's as small as it gets or as large as it gets in terms of global distribution and global access to capital. So if we add up the money markets and the capital markets, we get, that's the financial markets. Are we missing anything out? Is there anything else? Yes. Um, So financial markets are probably much broader than that. And again, it's it's not a formally defined term, but you could imagine that apart from money markets, capital markets, you have commodity markets, currency markets, derivative markets. Ah. All of these would comprise financial markets to some extent, just plain banking transactions would also be part of financial markets, so loans, and so on and so forth. So all of that comes under the omnibus of financial markets. Oh, so we're not going to be able to finish the podcast today. No, <laughs> we have, we've got more things to cover here. We've got other but, but, markets but, to get into. But this market, it's a virtual market, right? Just to make that clear. So it's not, it's, it doesn't have an address. None of these markets has, an, has a, a defined location that, you know, this one is in Buenos Aires or this one's in London or this one is uh, the, when we're talking about the capital markets or, or the equity capital market, for example, it's we're talking about a virtual marketplace with different actors from various parts of the world interacting with each other. Uh, yes and no, um, in the sense that when all of this started. So basically, in order to create a marketplace, you need to get buyers and sellers together to transact. And in the good old days, before the advent of telephones and computers, you needed a physical location to enable this activity to happen efficiently. And so, for example, in 17th century Amsterdam, the first stock exchange was open. Now, what is a stock exchange? It's basically a marketplace to transact in equity, uh, whether it be a primary equity offering or secondary market transactions after the primary offering. Uh, that took place in a physical location. Stock exchanges still have physical location. You were mentioning the New York Stock Exchange. By definition, it is in New York. and But it does not mean that people all get together in a large hall to transact. With the advent of telephones and computers, all these transactions can take place remotely, although stock exchanges still exist in order for any firm wanting to offer equity to satisfy certain credentials and get itself so-called listed on a stock exchange where prices of trades in in the equity of that firm will be published so that people can see where it's trading and all all sort of rules and regulations associated with that offering are 
monitored and made sure they're adhered to by the stock exchange. There are still people on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, though. Oh, is what? there? I, I, that's what I grew up with, was watching a TV series called Capital City, I think, where, where there were a lot of guys yelling at each other. They're yelling at each other, yes, right. and making trades and things. Well, there's a lot Does of people in happen? New York still yelling at each other, but are they doing it on the stock exchange? I, well, less and less so. Mm-hmm. So... There is a good argument to be made, and certain commodity markets and futures markets in Chicago in particular work this way. What was called an open pit literally meant a whole bunch of quite aggressive and loud people yelling at each other numbers, which reflected demand and supply for whatever commodity or product was being traded and the prices associated with those trades. And the idea was, apart from physically getting everyone in the room to to enable them to transact, was that this visceral sort of mechanism to trade gave people a better sense of demand, supply, and what was happening in markets, a physical uh, sort of optical feel for what was going on in markets rather than some electronic screen flashing at you. Um, There are a lot of people who believe that that still serves a purpose for certain markets, but less and less so. And it's becoming cumbersome and expensive to to hold these things together. And, And as you were mentioning earlier, talking about globalization, if a market is restricted to one city and one location within one city, then it's going to be virtually a market that won't survive very long. Markets are global, demand is global, and so these things needed to spread out in a way that uh, enabled liquidity and, and, and transactions to happen all across the globe rather than one particular location. When when they're not trading on a floor mm-hmm. like that, when they're not standing yelling directly at each other when they're sitting looking at a computer, is that called an over-the-counter market? Um, no. Um, so the, the the process I describe where people are in a room is called an open pit, as I mentioned. So mm-hmm. that's open pit or, or open outcry is also, it's also known as open outcry market because people are just yelling at each other basically, literally. Mm-hmm. And so it's known as open outcry. Whereas over-the-counter is basically a bespoke market where you and I transact with each other, maybe through a broker, maybe directly with each other. A sort of exchange market is one where prices flash up on a screen in a centralized manner, a buying price or a selling price, and you transact at that price in a virtual sense. Whereas the transaction you and I can do can be bespoke. The the prices don't appear on a screen anywhere, and it's just a bilateral transaction between ourselves. So that's more an over-the-counter market, whereas uh, the sort of listed exchange markets happen more publicly and visibly and transparently. So an over-the-counter market doesn't have an exchange? No. So uh, let's take an example. We mentioned New York Stock Exchange still has some people Mm -hmm. in open outcry yelling at each other. What about some of the other big markets that we might have, have heard about, like uh, London and Paris, Tokyo? Are they doing it that way? Not at all. So how do they do it there? It's a virtual market, as, as Alaa was saying uh-huh. earlier. So basically, it's all computer screens. And all the stock exchanges have are large banks of computer servers that process all the transactions that go through them. And their job, the stock exchange's job, is then to make sure that transactions or the price at which these transactions are happening and the volume of transactions going through are publicly announced in some manner so that they appear on screens in on, in banks and in, in any other places which have sort of screens for financial screens, Bloomberg's and Reuters and those kind of Have platforms. economists studied which of those methods is, is better? Well, clearly, better or worse, sort of, it's like saying, you know, there's arguments that technology and 
is in globalization are increasing liquidity. It depends on what you mean by better. If better means enabling more access, secondary market liquidity, more trades, uh, more savings being transformed into uh, productive investment, then arguably the, uh, the fact that uh, more people are reachable through virtual electronics and computer screens is much better than having a localized uh, location where physically people needed to go to transact. So clearly that's better. It can also reduce the chances of, a, of an asset bubble in one specific part of the world. I, I assume if it's physical and if it's, lo- you know, if it's fragmented, you could easily have you know, people uh, trading one asset in one location reaching a very different price uh, point than, than people at the same time trading that same asset in another place. That sounds logical, and I would agree with you, except we have something called cryptocurrencies these days. Bitcoin is a good example of that, which people read about in newspapers every day, having just crossed $10,000. Um, so bubbles do happen, and financial bubbles happen periodically, even in globalized and computerized markets uh, such as those of today. Um, Does every capital market have some kind of benchmark, either an index or a a particular security that when it goes up, the market is said to have gone up, when it goes down, the other way? It's a good method to um, enable people follow markets is by aggregating information. Um, so, I mean, equity markets are somewhat simpler in the sense that a company usually can issue one share or one type of share called equity in that company. Whereas someone like the European Investment Bank has 380 bonds outstanding. So indices aggregate information and help people understand what's going on in aggregate and um, the creation of indices all all over the world in various markets is is obviously helpful. And for people who don't want to follow individual, particularly individual savers, you and I, um, don't have the time of the day to keep following the fortunes of each company and, you know, and, and create a vast portfolio of companies. We'd rather buy an index or an entire market uh, and, and leave it at that. And index investing is obviously cheaper because you don't follow individual companies and you don't disaggregate. The aggregation makes it cheaper to invest as well. So indexes have become very, very popular and in all kinds of markets, not just equity and, and bond markets. You mentioned there that you need different kinds of investors. You know, if it's the capital markets, then some someone, a company, for example, is raising capital. But then on the other end of it, you have to have other people who are trading. And I remember um, when I was in New York in the 90s, there was this uh, French bank that used to have an event for um, for the Super Bowl mm-hmm. where you would they set up uh, screens and they had people from Wall Street would come and would trade what they thought was going to happen on the screen. So they were trading futures essentially on the screen. And for me and some of the other journalists who went, we'd say, okay, we think uh, Dallas is going to win, so I'll buy this. And then we just sat back and had a beer. But these traders were in there and they were going nuts the whole night. They were yelling and screaming every time there was a play. So you need people like like me who are just going to figure out what's happening and then have a beer. And, and that's, I've got my capital. But then you need the other people who are going to be in there selling every 10 seconds or buying every 10 seconds. How many different players are there in a capital market and how could we define all of them? Well, well let's start with the saver. You and I, we have some savings. Um, putting them or sticking them in a bank in a deposit is not going to help with our retirement plans. 
Um, so we need those savings to be uh, invested a little more efficiently than they are sitting sitting in a bank. Um, one way, or the old days, you'd call up your broker and ask them what was going on, and the broker would say, well, there's, there's new equity issues or new bond issues by such and such company. One is attractive, another is not. Would you like to invest? And you do the transaction with the, with, 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 with the broker. But that, again, was very inefficient, and so we now have financial intermediaries or funds that aggregate savings. So everyone's heard of a mutual fund, which is nothing but an aggregation of savings from individual savers. The mutual funds then collectively invest large sums of money in various capital markets. There are pension funds where our contributions towards a pension and our employers' contributions towards a pension are aggregated. Those people transact in markets as well. Uh, There are banks who obviously have savings. They transact in markets as well. There are um, other kinds of uh, funds like hedge funds, which people have heard of, which are nothing but speculative investment funds uh, who don't or are not permitted to gather money from the public at large, but from extremely high net worth or rich individuals. And they make speculative bets on markets. So there are those kind of investors. Now, these people are all investors in the sense that they are using existing funds to buy uh, a stock or share or any other kind of financial asset. But in order for these transactions to take place, you need intermediaries called market makers. And what a market maker does is provide both a buying price and and a selling price simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So the job for the market maker is to make, this is called making liquidity in a market, basically simultaneously providing a price at which they will buy the asset and sell the asset. Of course, there's going to be a margin in the middle, which they will keep for themselves for, for, for doing this job. But so liquidity providers are slightly different from investors. Liquidity providers can be investors as well for themselves. But by and large, their main job is to make sure prices are available to people to either buy or sell a financial asset at any time they wish to do so. Hmm. And, and those those market makers would be what we know as a, like a Wall Street firm in New York or a, exactly. a city firm in, in London. Exactly. So investment banks, particularly in, in equity and bond markets, are market makers in, in, in you mentioned different kinds of funds. Uh, so from from that, did I understand correctly? So hedge funds are kind of doing a slightly more riskier kind of investing, and you need to be a, a sort of a professional investor to in, invest with hedge funds. Is that is that correct? That's that's a fair characterization. I mean, the term hedge funds would imply that somehow the investments are fully hedged. Uh, which used to be the case when hedge funds were first created back in the 60s. So the idea was that the investments would be market neutral. What that meant was if a hedge fund was investing in equity markets, then it wouldn't matter if the markets went up in aggregate or down, their investments would perform. So they figured out some way of investing in in equity markets which were market neutral. Now, as time has gone by, uh, hedge funds is just a, a, well, you could call it a misnomer, but it's just a label applied to certain funds that raise money, as you said, from high net worth or rich individuals or even institutions. And these hedge funds make large-scale speculative bets. They can take on leverage, i.e. they take money from you, but they mm-hmm. also borrow money on top of that and make large-scale um, uh, sort of bets on, on, on markets. Sometimes these bets are large enough to be market-moving, which is why some degree of uh, sort of uh, 
infamy is associated with, with hedge funds. Of course, there are other things as well, such as um, their compensation structure, which is, is very, very attractive and, and unheard of in other, other kinds of financial, uh, with other kinds of financial intermediaries. So these kind of characters, the, the market moving nature, the speculative nature, the large scale on which they can operate and the compensation structure have led to hedge funds becoming uh, well-known in, in the financial press and, and even outside the financial world. Mm-hmm. Compensation structure, meaning the hedge fund managers make billions of, of euros, billions of dollars. Yeah, so they have a, a peculiar structure. Um, well, peculiar is probably not the correct word, but they have a structure where, where not only do they compensate themselves on the volume of money they manage. So, so if you put money in a, in a mutual fund, the mutual fund will charge you a certain percentage of, of the money that you've invested to them to manage the administration and, and investments for you. That percentage is usually very tiny, but it is applied on the entire volume of funds that the mutual fund manages. Hedge funds do the same. They apply a small percentage for themselves on the volume of money they manage. But that percentage is 2%, usually, not half a percent that you'd pay a mutual fund. Mm. Over and above that, hedge funds would want to keep 20% of any outperformance that they do, any profit that they make. So usually a hedge fund would say, my benchmark that I need to beat is X. And if I beat that benchmark, anything I make over that benchmark, I keep 20% and you get 80. But the, the, the mutual funds, which are more suitable for a, for a layman to invest with, uh, they, they would be slightly more conservative and uh, not delivering that kind of profits. Exactly. So mutual funds are regulated investments, whereas, as I mentioned earlier, hedge funds are not regulated. And they're not regulated because um, regulators and governments feel that if they are raising money from so-called professional investors or at the very least very, very rich people who can afford to take those risks and perhaps lose that money, then they don't need to be regulated as strictly. Stepping back a little bit, when I say not regulated, in today's market, in financial markets in particular, Everything is so interlinked that to some extent, when a hedge fund gets too big to fail, then regulatory interest starts bearing down on them. Now, too big to fail is, is a term we've heard of since the financial crisis very, very often. It doesn't apply only to hedge funds. It applies to all kinds of institutions from an insurance company like AIG to an investment bank like Lehman Brothers and so on and so forth. So, so being too big to fail is not particular to hedge funds, but being unregulated entities, one has to keep a wary eye on the fact where they don't get too large. There was a famous case in the late 90s on a hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management, which employed a whole bunch of Nobel laureates to um, unravel um, arbitrage in financial markets and, and try and make money in, 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 on a very, very large scale. So in some senses, hoovering pennies or discrepancies, or very, very technical discrepancies between various prices in financial markets, but doing it on a, such a large scale that those pennies added up to quite a bit. Uh, obviously, that went spectacularly wrong for a variety of reasons. And so ever since then, um, you know, uh, the, whilst hedge funds remain unregulated entities, regulators do keep an eye to see how big they're growing. Let's talk about who is watching mm-hmm. um, with, these, with these markets. There's regulation and then there's also the exchanges, presumably. Yes. Is, is that, what is the scope of the oversight sure. of these markets? So, again, it depends from country to country, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. By and large, in developed markets, there is very sound foundation laid by the passage of securities law. So that is law legislature passed through parliament or Congress or whatever you have, um, whatever legislative body you have. 
those security laws are then enforced by the securities regulator. So European Securities Market Authority, uh, the um, Bank of England or the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, uh, the Securities Exchange Commission in the US, these are all regulators that make enforce securities law in each of these countries. And then there are the stock exchanges. So any company wanting to either list its equity on a stock exchange or issue a bond and list it on the stock exchange would have to establish certain credentials with that stock exchange before it's allowed to do so. And those credentials uh, include uh, making sure that uh, the you know the firm is well audited, the firm has a track record, a history, makes money, is in a uh, proper business, and then not doing illegal activity, and all those kind of things. So these two sort of levels of of, of scrutiny, one from the regulator, one from the stock exchange, by and large work. But these are not proactive in the sense that in order for a company to issue a bond or, 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 or an equity, they don't have to go from door to door seeking all sorts of permission with a whole bunch of paperwork. But that's largely in developed markets. When you go to developing markets, there it's a little more cumbersome, where interactions with the regulator is a lot more frequent and it's an iterative process. So there, the, there is friction between the time a company wants to raise money and by the time it gets to actually get its hand on, on its money, only because enforcement of laws or perhaps the laws themselves are not as robust and mature as they are in, in some of the markets where the process is a little more frictionless. When you buy and sell on one of these markets, let's say we're talking about small investors now, mm. not, not big companies, do you have to pay tax? Well, by and large, a small investor individually transacting on an exchange is extinct. Mm. So first of all, most, I don't know personally of anyone who individually invests in a stock through a broker anymore. Most people go through an institution, mostly through mutual funds or other kinds of institutions, banks, and so on and so forth. Um, And so these banks then um, obviously uh, either transact in their own name or use another financial intermediary, that that, uh, a market maker, for instance, to, to, to transact in a market. Now, is there a tax? Well, it depends on what kind of financial instrument we are talking about. So equities, is, is, is let's, let's take equities as an example. Um, if you're buying through a mutual fund, um, then any, in some cases, the UK is a good example of that, encourages investments to the tune of £20,000 per individual per year as tax-free investments in through, through, through UK mutual funds. Um, anything above that is tax, any gains above that. So you're talking about what are called capital gains. It's investing in capital. You buy at a certain price, you sell at a higher price, you make some money, and that money ought to be taxable. So unless it's tax exempt because there's a law that encourages you to invest, it will be tax. Tax can be, again, split into uh, our earlier talk about between money market and and long-term gains, into short-term capital gains and long-term capital gains. Short-term capital gains are sometimes one year and under, and long-term capital gains apply for longer Short-term capital gains would probably be higher than long-term capital gains because long-term capital gains uh, or long-term investment is encouraged. So the longer you hold the security rather than sort of keep trading in and out of it is is encouraged and therefore long-term capital gains are lower and so on and so forth. So that would sort of uh, explain taxes on equity, but there are other kind of taxes that happen on bonds. In Europe, there is an ongoing but dying initiative to introduce something called the Financial Transactions Tax, FTT in short. And that initiative 
was uh, seeded. Well, it's the concept's been around for a long time, but it was given political uh, backing after the financial crisis, where the idea of the concept was that financial markets have grown too big uh, in size and are fragile, as we've seen from time to time, and impact the real economy quite adversely when something bad happens. And in order to control the size of financial markets and control speculative activity on these markets, perhaps every transaction needs to have a small tax associated with it that will be collected in order to put some grit into the system to try and slow down the volume of transactions or reduce the volume of transactions. So there are all kinds of taxes everywhere, and you can't get away from, from taxes. You mentioned that there are a lot of intermediaries when people trade because uh, a regular person wouldn't trade directly on a, on a market. Uh, how does that affect uh, institutions and companies knowing who their shareholders or who their investors are? So, for example, when, when EIB issues bonds, do we know who are buying our bonds? I mean, are they... <laughs> Are they hedge funds or mutual funds or are they, you know, high net worth private individuals or who who are they? Do we do we know that? Do companies and institutions know who's who's buying, who's providing the capital? Um, yes, and in the sense they know institutionally, you know who. So, so let me give you an example of, of a bond issue, a typical bond issued by EIB. So a typical bond issued by EIB would either be bought by a central bank or uh, some other government sovereign wealth fund kind of entity, by a pension fund, by an insurance company, by a mutual fund, uh, by a commercial bank, uh, or a small retail bank. Um, but these would be the categorizations of investors that we would be familiar with who have purchased our bonds. Now, who is behind the mutual funds? How many investors are there? Or in a retail bank, how many clients get distributed uh, the share of bonds that that retail bank bought is unknown to us. In companies and equity, I think the register of shareholders, again, is largely institutionalized now. There still are companies, of course, and we've seen uh, examples lately where particularly when mergers and acquisitions are happening or the company needs to transform itself and requires shareholders to vote for that transformation, they go around seeking votes from their shareholders. Now, individual shareholders in far-flung places don't generally go to a physical annual general meeting of, of, of shareholders held in some location remote from them. And so they, companies send them letters and seek proxy votes for them to, to, to vote on, on, on behalf of themselves. Um, so there are, there are still legacy shareholders in individual names of a bunch of companies around the world. But by and large, Equity holding and bond holding is largely institutionalized. But if the EIB issues a bond and it's bought by a pension fund, if that pension fund then sells the bond to someone else, do they tell the issuer? No. So, so, so the bonds that our bank has issued, someone could be holding them who, and we don't know who it is. Exactly right. So um, essentially all we know is when we – so um, we spoke a little bit about this earlier. Uh, there are two kinds of markets within uh, capital markets which are – primary markets and secondary markets. So a primary market is when new security is created, a new bond or a new share uh, when it's sold is primary. After that, the transactions that happen in that security are deemed secondary market transactions. Secondary market transactions are between the party that holds the security and the party that's going to buy the security. It's a bilateral transaction between those two parties. We, the issuer, have no access to that information because that's confidential. 
How do we how do we get, how do we send the person money on the bond? We, we should be providing a, a, a an annual payment. Right? So basically, there are so-called clearing systems, uh, Euroclear, Clearstream, DTC in the U.S. and so on and so forth. So all payment systems are centralized through aggregated bodies called clearing systems. The clearing systems hold a register that tells them who owns these bonds, and all we do is pass on money through our bankers to a clearing system. The clearing system then credits the accounts of all these various holders. Ah, but the people who own shares in a company, though, they have to be identified to the company because otherwise how would the company get in touch with them to tell them uh, we've got an annual meeting coming up and so on? Are they, are they registered with the company? Correct. So um, the, the, a company's register, again, is maintained by financial intermediaries, brokers, etc., or or, or, or or firms that specialize in maintaining shareholding registers. So... Assuming that most of the company's shareholding register is full of institutions, then it's not a very large register. Uh, it's a finite number of institutions. But as I was saying earlier, there are a lot of companies with legacy shareholders going back to the time when individuals would transact or buy shares directly, and there are thousands of them. And so it's cumbersome to keep a record of them, but a record needs to be kept, either for soliciting votes or pay, paying dividends and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but again, a lot of that happens through systems created uh, in the middle between the company and, and the investor that actually specialize in, in, in updating registers and making sure that each person who holds a share. Now, remember that there are, when, when, we, when I own an equity in a company, I don't anymore have a physical piece of paper saying I'm entitled to part ownership of that company. Most of it is virtual. By virtue of it being virtual means there's an electronic system that somebody is managing that holds these shares on my behalf in that company. So these systems would then recognize that I'm the holder, or if I sell it to someone, then someone else becomes the holder and so on. Ah, that's right. We had that phrase in a previous podcast, didn't we? Dematerialized. That's right. That's the word. Well, contrary to dematerializing, you've given us a lot of very good material today, Sandy. Wasn't that smooth? I like that. That was a very good segue. Uh, So thank you so much for being with us on a dictionary of finance from the European Investment Bank. Uh, to our listeners, please get in touch with us if you'd like us to pose more questions about this subject or other subjects to Sandeep or any of our other guests. Uh, we're on Twitter at EIBMATT, M-A-T-T, and... And I'm still at Alar Tankler, A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. And send him uh, a tweet if you'd like him to change it to at EIBTank, which I think would be a, a much better uh, Twitter handle. And we'll see you next week on... A Dictionary of Finance from the European Investment Bank.